0: Good morning. Uh, It is great to be here. I love being here. I'm just not here often, and uh, I'm sorry for that. Uh, Gail and I, because of what we do, we're always uh, traveling somewhere or we're another local church or coming alongside uh, people who have just moved in to plant their lives and plant churches like Charles River. And we just love being here when we get to. This is two Sundays in a row, and we like that. And for those of you maybe a first-time guest or You're coming around, we tell everybody we can about Charles River and all the neat and cool things that God is doing here, and you're a big part of it. And somewhere along the way, we hope to get to know some of you and literally get to be here more often than what we do now. Over the last few weeks, I know several weeks, Josh has been moving you into a series that has been uh, captured by the title, Upside Down Kingdom. And he's been taking you through the gospel of Luke. And I know this morning I enjoyed listening to, to Kevin and, and Morgan and Matt uh, just bring us into a sense that there's something more happening here today than just us being here. That There's something that God wants to do in your life and in mine. It wants to be a transforming moment, not just to hear, not just to feel, but to leave this place with the idea that our hearts were different than the way we came in. And I hope that happens to you somewhere along the way this morning. So we're going to dive in this morning. We're going to actually look at a place this morning that reflects what an upside-down kingdom life looks like. We're going to take a little bit of pause from this walk-through Luke, the Gospel of Luke. But we're going to look at his sequel, Volume 2, that Luke wrote. And he's going to talk to us about when Christ comes in your life, the living, resurrected Christ. What does that mean? And he's going to show us from the book of Acts... This history of the early church, what happened when they took Jesus seriously in their life and the impact that it was on their world and in their own personal lives. So we'll look at that together. Uh, I don't know what you're bringing in this morning in terms of what your week's been like, your world is like, but my hope is that you'll leave here uh, as we're going to be looking at this morning lifted up and just moving in a new and positive direction in your world and your life. I want to pray again. Ryan has done such a great job of leading us this way. I want to pray a simple prayer with you, if you would join me in that right now. We have heard so much this morning already that reminds us of um, this overwhelming sense of you're moving toward us, and you want to move towards us even closer today, Father. And you'll make it so clear to us as you move deeper than just our thoughts, you move deep down into our soul and you begin to shape it in new ways. And that's our prayer and our desire this morning. And we want to make sure that before we leave, that well, the one that matters most of all is the one that we're drawn to, the name of Jesus. Offer your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I, we have three children, uh, nine grandchildren. That means we've been around for a little while. And, uh, but two of my three children uh, are runners. In fact, combined together... They have completed, competed and completed eight marathons, and I've happened to be there uh, for two of them as they've crossed the finish line. Uh, My youngest son, Jonathan, I was there for the Marine Marathon in D.C., and Gell and I were there along with his wife and kids, and we're watching him make up that last killer hill there at Marine Marathon. It was pretty exciting to watch him come along and see that smile of a runner's accomplishment. And then a little bit later on, we had to kind of carry him along because he was totally depleted. But I think probably the most memorable for me was being at the world's most famous uh, crossing line and finish line. And that, of course, is for the Boston Marathon on uh, Boston Street, and where my daughter competed and completed some years ago. Now, she competed and completed the Boston Marathon, the only one in its 119-year history that was almost canceled. If you go back to April 16, 2007, the year that she competed, you will go back and remember that just days before, meteorologists had predicted a storm of epic proportions on the day the marathon would be run. And sure enough, it was a weather like they had not seen ever before. They had wind gusts of 50 miles an hour, which meant every runner would face a headwind of between 20 and 30 miles an hour. It was an icy rain. The wind chill factor was about 20 degrees and it, there were fallen power lines and trees had fallen on the route of the marathon. And they were huddled together trying to decide whether or not they would cancel this marathon. And it also meant that at the staging area where they would begin in Hopkinton, that the mud was like ankle deep. Runners would be running in wet, soggy shoes and heavy clothes. They were wondering whether or not they should cancel this. I remember calling Amy early in the morning and just saying, Do you really want to do this? Can you feel the wind? Can you hear it outside? And I knew that her answer would be, a, well, of course. I came all this way. I'm one of 23,000 runners. I'm here. I'm ready to do this. I said, oh, you know what? I'll see you at the finish line. And it was a scary kind of a start, but she continued on the race and I tried to find her along the way in Wellesley. I was trying to, on the sideline, it kind of turned actually a little bit sunny about that time, and I was watching her come down, though. I thought it was her, it was somebody else, and I kept looking and finally hopped in my car so I could be there at the finish line. I don't know if you've ever been at the finish line uh, at uh, the Boston Marathon on Boylston. Watching those runners make that last little push, and you see some with wobbly legs, you see some almost falter and falling, and people come alongside them and pick them up and carry them a little bit further. Finally, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted Amy. And she was, you could tell, there was an elation, but also an exhaustion. But all along the route, people who did not know her, people who did not know any of the runners, were cheering them on. I didn't hear anybody from the sidelines go, you look exhausted, you just should quit. I didn't hear anybody say that. In fact, I heard just the opposite. I heard people say, you can do it. You got this. It's just a little bit farther. You can make it. And I let out my biggest woo-hoo when I saw her pass by and hollered her name and clapped and did all the other things. And it was an exciting moment to watch her finish. And you know, when I think back to that moment, when so many conditions were saying, don't do this, and so many uh, parts of that day just predicted it was just going to be tough, the marathon is tough enough, but... With those kind of conditions, I think back, what was it that made those runners want to run that day? What was it that caused them to complete such an exhausting, difficult race? It was because of all the people standing on the sideline somewhere along the way saying, you got this. Push it, you can do it. You got this. Now my question for you and for me this morning is that normally the way that it is in life? And tragically so, it's not. There is this total lack of sense of people that are there to cheer us on because there are a lot of days, more days than we care to think about, when it looks, we look at our life and we're just not making any progress, uh, it's just kind of pushing through. It's not like you know our life is falling apart, but on the inside of us, We're just not seeing it happen. And all of us in those kind of moments need somebody alongside of us, somebody who really gets us, somebody who understands us, somebody who's there for and with us to cheer, to spur us on. But here's the truth of the matter. Several studies have been done. In fact, the most well-known by the Gottman Institute, they came up with this tabulation and research that discovered that for every one compliment in the business world, there are ten criticisms. For every one, there are ten. It doesn't get any better when you start getting to the inner circle of your family. They discovered that for every one compliment in the context of a family, there were six negative criticisms. Maybe that explains why today so many people live in their work environment with an attitude, of, if I could find another job, I would do it. And it's not because of pay or benefits. It's because of the lack of appreciation or recognition. Number one reason. It explains many times why some of our marriages and some of our families are so absolutely toxic because here they are living in the place living in an environment within a circle of relationships that's supposed to be what? Understanding, be there with and for you, accepting unconditionally, and yet it just seems like there's far more criticism than there is a compliment. That's our drift. Have you ever had anybody say something like this to you? Or have you ever thought this? I just don't think I could ever please you. Have you ever felt that? Uh, So just imagine, if you would, kind of a scale here. And there's this ratio of compliments versus criticism. Over here, you've got one compliment. Over here, you've got six criticisms. Let me ask you just a simple question. As you look back across the seven last seven days of your life last week, what would your ratio be? What would your ratio be? In terms of expressions, in terms of actions toward another person, toward the people that are in your everyday world? What would your ratio be? Would it be six to one? Would it be two to seven? What would your ratio be? You see, it's, it's a real challenge here because there, there, there is this passive silence sometimes. There's this open sarcasm. We live in a culture. Think about it. Over here, you've got somebody one time a day saying, hey, you just, you really killed it. You knocked it out of the park. And for every one of those, you've got six people over here saying, when are you going to ever learn? There is just a real lack of people alongside of us cheering us on, being there with and for us. Now, it's not that you and I don't think that encouragement is important. We do. We believe it. We all like, nobody's going to argue against encouragement, right? We just don't believe it's that vital, but I'm here to say this morning, as we talk about an upside-down kingdom, we're going to dig into it, it's absolutely essential to your survival and your growth and your development, absolutely essential, absolutely essential. So as we're looking at it this morning, I want to describe two different kinds of people, and you decide which one you are, okay, as before we dive into this foundation that's in the, the scripture that we're going to look at in a moment. So kind of to categorize yourself here for a moment. Two different kinds. The first one is the type of person who breathes life into you. It's what Gregory of Nicaea, the, one of the great church fathers, he coined the term called balcony people. A balcony person. is the person who, whenever they're around you, they remind you of how good God is. The kind of person when they're around you, they have this ability to help you understand God's purpose and plan for your life and how that he's at work in your life in powerful ways even though you can't see it. They're the kind of person that calm your anxiety. They spur your faith on. They they encourage you to trust God in deeper and stronger ways. That's a balcony person. They breathe life into you. Balcony people. They're in the stands. They're they're cheering you on. And then there's Not only the balcony people, but there's the basement people. Basement people are the people that are kind of the bottom feeders. They're the kind of people that are joy challenged, that are dream squashers, that are fault finding. And when they're around you, they suck the life out of you. So you've got balcony people who breathe life into you. You've got basement people who suck the life out of you. Question, which one are you? which one am I? And it's, a, it's, it's not something that you and I can take for granted. It's something that is absolutely essential to your growth as a Christ follower. It's absolutely essential to not only that, but for living out God's call and plan and purpose for your life. I've seen basement people in action. I see it on the little league field when I'm watching a little nine-year-old boy who just from all appearances has this incredible giftedness as an athlete and And yet, as he's standing up at the plate, out of the corner of the eye, he's looking around because he can see his father just down the fence line. And as he's looking over there, he can see the gestures on his face of displeasure. He can see the the words that are coming out of his mouth in kind of an unspoken way. But he hears them even though nobody else can hear them. Words of disapproval. And he stands there at that bat with his bat in his hand, wondering if he's going to please his father. Basement people. Which one are you? And with all of that in mind, I want us to look at the language of the New Testament because encouragement is the language of the New Testament. In fact, you'll find it over a hundred different times. And rather than give you a definition, what I'd like to do this morning is just give you a profile through the, the lens of one particular person. Now, when we open up the, the, the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, when they would explode it, You'll be familiar with names if you have any kind of understanding of the early church. Famous guys that were kind of keynote leaders. Who were they? Peter. Paul. James. But there's one particular individual who's rather obscure. He's kind of tucked in there. You see him all the way through in the early chapters. He's an obscure person, but he is the patron saint of balcony people. And I was to talk about this guy this morning. And so if you would, I want you to follow with me. We're going to make our way through just several different places, stopping points in the book of Acts. And we're going to be introduced to a man by the name of Barnabas. So I want to invite you to follow along. And as we do, we're just going to make note of all of the things that describe and display what it means to be a balcony person. Pause here for a second. This is absolutely essential. Encouragement is. People who breathe life into you and to become that kind of person to breathe life into other for you to be able to finish well when all the conditions around you will push you away from all that God has for you. This plan and purpose for your life to live out a fully devoted life to Christ. So essential. This is not insignificant. This isn't optional. This is critical. Perhaps if I could go so far to say you can read your Bible. You can pray fervently. You can serve tirelessly. But if you don't understand and have people breathing life into you, listen carefully, you won't make it. You just won't. So with that in mind, let's drop in. The first place we see him listed is Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, we are introduced to this man, uh, give a little bit of descriptor. His name is Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. Now, that tells us a lot. Here's what it says. It tells us, number one, that he, uh, he didn't start out with the name Barnabas, it tells us that he, came from, uh, that he came from a life of service, a Levite, with somebody who served in the temple and maybe was an assistant with the, as a musician, or he put things together like people set things up here every week. He was just there as an assistant. But he was from Cyprus, which meant he was a Hellenist, he was an outsider, and that meant in the kind of the realm of thinking of Israel, Hellenists and Israelites didn't get along very well because of, a Hellenist was an Israelite from another country, and they didn't mix well with native Israelites. You were just kind of still considered an outsider. Kind of like when we moved to New Hampshire six years ago, I had some people tell us, you know, you can live here 35 years, and we'll still think of you as somebody from the outside, because you were born here. And there was a kind of a hostility between it. So you can imagine... And because of that, Joseph could not serve in the temple because he was an outsider, even though he was a Levite. He could have had an attitude already of kind of like, hey, why are you doing this to me? And he could have isolated himself and pushed himself back. But here's the truth. And what happens here is he sees a need. At this particular time, the church at Jerusalem, the, the first church, the people had their backs up against the wall. It was very hard times because of their faith in Christ. They were economically persecuted. They were suffering terribly. And here Barnabas, Joseph, knew to this community, he sees a need. He takes his property and he sells it and he gives it all. This is not just some man acting in a kind of a token manner. He was the first donor to the church that we know anything about. He took everything that he had, sold it, owned, uh, that he owned, and he gave it to them so that their needs would be met. One of the things about encouragement that I think is very important to know that all expressions of encouragement are acts of generosity. Are acts of generosity. It's about making yourself available. It's about taking all that you have and holding it with loose hands and saying, God, how do you want to use this? My words. How do you want to use my thoughts? How do you want to use my hands? How do you want to use them? My resources financially, how do you want them to be used to breathe life into somebody else? It's always about giving. And one of the very first kind of qualities, characteristics of a person of encouragement, a balcony person, is that they are attentive and responsive to the real needs of others. They're attentive. They're aware. They listen They pay attention and then they respond. They don't hesitate. They don't stand off and just look at it and say, well, I guess I'll just pray for that person. No, they actually step out and they actually either speak something into that person's life or they take time to come alongside that person and be with that person or they actually reach deep into their own personal resources, whether it be much or little, and they say, here, I want you to have this because I know right now you need this. Attentive. And responsive. They're there for and with. Uh, Joseph. The disciples say. The apostles. The leaders of the church. They go. You know what? That name doesn't fit you anymore. We've got to give you another name. And from now on. We're calling you Barnabas. Because that's the nickname that fits you. You're all the time. Breathing life into people. By the way. sidebar. What nickname would people give you based upon your character? What nickname would they give you? This is not a time to look at the other person and say, I know what I'd tell you. This is a time to think about you. What kind of character? What kind of nickname? Well, let's look at him again. That's kind of the introduction to this guy. Let's go a little bit further. Next time he appears is in Acts chapter 9. So we'll turn over there. If you want to look up on the screen, that's fine as well. But next chapter 9, I'm going to pick it up at verse uh, 28. Paul uh, Saul at this particular point in time was a man who was uh, a Jesus hater. He terrorized all Jesus followers. In fact, he was responsible for having people thrown into prison. He literally was a, a person that we might describe in our day of wreaking havoc kind of like the ISIS of his day. That was Saul. He hated Christians. He hated Christ, a Jesus hater. And then he had a dramatic turn in his life where he turned his life over to Christ in dramatic fashion and he was completely changed. He now believes, but here's a problem. The problem is this he comes to Jerusalem because he's escaping for his life because other people wanted to destroy him now that he had become a Jesus follower. He's thinking this is a safe haven, but here's the problem. He gets there, and what does it say there in verse 28? So Saul stayed with them, and excuse me, I'm sorry, down at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They're like, wait a second. This is the guy who killed our friend and was responsible for the death of our friend Stephen. This is the guy who's been responsible literally for thousands of Christ followers being thrown into prison. And now he wants to join us. How do we know this is for real? How do we know that this is just kind of an undercover way to get into us and do more harm? And then notice what it says. In just two little words. But Barnabas, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with him and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. What does Barnabas do here? Here's this guy that everybody is looking upon with great fear and trembling. This man can't be trusted. And Barnabas steps in the midst of that and he goes, wait a second. I'm just going to stand here. I'm going to step out. You guys want to push him out? I'm going to step out for him. I'm going to be his advocate. I'm going to speak up for him. Even though my reputation's on the line, not his. I'm going to embrace him. I'm telling you, You are afraid of him. I'm telling you, this man can be trusted. You know what Barnabas did in that moment? This is what encouragers do all the time. They look at people that have broken world lives. They look at people who have just maybe recently embraced Christ. Or maybe they're struggling in their walk with Christ. And they come alongside them and guess what they do? They extend grace to them. That's what encouragers always do. They extend grace to people who other people keep at a distance. They look for that person out there that maybe is a little bit awkward. They're not for sure how to manage everything in their life and this whole new life in Christ. And they still got some things baggage from their past life. And people look at them and say, I'm not for sure we can really accept this person. I'm not for sure we can really put our arms around this particular person. But the encouraging person looks for that kind of person and extends grace to them and says, people can change and I'm going to be an advocate. I'm going to be a cheerleader for this person. I'm going to be standing beside this person. That's Barnabas. Well, I'll fast forward a little bit further here. In Acts chapter 11, are you still with me? Acts chapter 11. We see Barnabas show up one more time. We're going to see him show up at a very pivotal time. At that particular point in time in the history of the church, the only place where the gospel had been heard was in the city of Jerusalem. And then because of persecution, they were kind of scattered to various places. And one of the places it was scattered to was a place called Antioch. And there people accepted and heard and believed the gospel of Jesus their lives were being transformed, and the people at Jerusalem who were kind of like uh, the team leaders for the church at that time, James and others, they heard about this, and they were a little bit concerned because the people in Antioch were Jewish believers, they were Gentile believers, and they were for concerned about the church going Gentile. And so they're concerned about all of this. So what do they do? Let's pick it up if we can. In Acts chapter 11, in verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrus went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with him, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. What a great statement here. What a great life verse here in verse 24. He was a good man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas is sent down there to check things out. And Barnabas goes, yeah, this is a good thing that's happening here. This is a great thing. It's a hinge point because if Barnabas had gone down there and anybody else had gone down there and began to question what was actually happening, the church probably wouldn't have expanded. At this particular point, Barnabas is coming in and he sees something very powerful is taking place here. Balcony people always see things in others that no one else can see. And they can see that this is a pivotal moment. This is a moment where the church can expand. This is a moment where the church can actually move beyond and actually go to all the uttermost parts of the world. And aren't we glad that Barnabas was there to encourage them and to to, to stand in a way in which says, yeah, I see what's happening here, and and it's God at work. And to add to this, it's not a script that's on the screen. If you follow on down through Acts chapter 11, let me just kind of give you a quick paraphrase of it. Barnabas is thinking about this new work at Antioch, and guess who comes to his mind? That recent convert by the name of Saul, who has this very formidable mind, has this capacity to, to speak. He knows the scripture because he was brought up in a Druist edition. He has this great personal story. And so Barnabas realizes in the moment, watch this, Barnabas realizes in that moment, Paul at that time named Saul could do a far better job than he could. And so he calls for Saul and he asks Saul to come to the church at Antioch and he says, I think you can do this. I've watched the way you're flourishing. I've watched what you're doing, and I think you can do this better than I can do this. I see great potential in you. And so Saul changes his Jewish name, Saul, to his Greek name of that, to Paul. He begins his fascinating ministry to all the Gentiles, and he goes around the world, preaching the gospel. Who brought him into that? Who endorsed him in that particular moment? Who saw great potential in him? Barnabas did. Because of that, the church accepted him. But then there's a little bit more to this. Stay with me because this is the ultimate test of an encourager. As you go on through the scriptures, go over to Acts chapter 13. Here you have Barnabas and Paul now going out, sharing the gospel, expanding the impact of the message. Verse 25 of Acts 12, it says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church in Antioch, there were prophets. And he goes and lists all the leaders of the church. And then down in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have appointed them. Now Understand something. In the way of Scripture and in that particular culture, the order in which a person's name was listed represented their order of significance. So what is it right now? It is what? It is Barnabas and who? Paul. It is Barnabas and Saul. Go to Acts chapter 14, verse 1. There's a shift. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas Went as usual. And from that point on, it's no longer Barnabas and Paul. It's what? Paul and Barnabas. There's a shift. What does that mean? The one that came to know Christ, that once was a Christ-hater, a Christian terrorizer, has now flourished to such a point where now he is taking the preeminent leadership role and Barnabas is taking the back seat. Let's just look at that through the world's point of view. That's not a good day for Barnabas' career, is it? His own personal status. His own personal sense of importance and significance. He's now second chair instead of first chair. He's no longer leader. Paul is now the leader. You know what the ultimate test of an encourager is? Is when they realize, and here it is, when they realize that serving others is far more important than their own personal significance. It's all about how can I help somebody else grow and develop? How can I be there with and for somebody else? It's not about my own personal advancement. It's about how can I think about where they are, look out, spy out, see that person, come alongside, breathe life into them, so they can grow and develop and become the person that God's called them to be. That's upside-down living. That's totally contrary to the kingdoms of this world. It's always about beat yesterday and beat the other person. But the encourager is always looking how to serve others rather than being focused on their own personal significance. That was Barnabas. Now we see him one more time before he disappears. Turn with me to Acts 15. On this particular occasion, Paul and Barnabas have had incredible responses. They made their first kind of missionary track, sharing the gospel to the Gentile world. They come back to Jerusalem. They give a great report to help people to understand. Let's don't add to the gospel. Let's keep it clear. It's only about God's grace toward us. Still try to make them Jewish Christians. Let's still try to make them like us. Let's just make sure it's all about grace. And so now Paul and Barnabas, encouraged, are ready to set out again. And Paul says, Let's go back to the same places we've been and just see how everybody's doing. Let's encourage them. And Barnabas says, Yeah, let's go. And, and I want to take John Mark with us. Now, John Mark. I don't know whether you know anything about this guy, but if you look in the Gospels, there's this kind of interesting character that we see at the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is deserted by all of his followers. And there happens to be, the Bible just describes him this way, a young man who was there also, who because of his own fear and lack of courage ran from the authorities. Somebody grabbed for him and ripped his clothes off of him and literally he ran through the night because of his fear. Well, that same John Mark, after he comes back to the faith and and, and becomes a part of the fellowship once again, he goes out with Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey, but somewhere along the way, that same fear factor gets in and he, he comes back home. The Bible doesn't give us any details. Now they're getting ready to set out again and Barnabas is saying, hey, let's take this young man with us again. And Paul says, no, not happening. I'm not taking him with us. It's a it's, it's a track record that we can't keep seeing happen. We can't depend on him. He's not trustworthy. And the scripture says here, look at it in Acts 15. Sometime later, beginning at verse 36, sometime later Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and, and let's visit the, the believers. And Barnabas wanted to take with him John Mark, who called him Mark with him. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him. Because he had deserted them. And down in verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement. This was no mild, hey, you believe one thing, let's just agree to be dis- disagree. No, this was so intense that they said, we can't keep doing this together. And Barnabas stood his ground. if you're not taking him, I'm not going. And so we see Paul choosing Silas and heading off. And Barnabas takes John Mark, and we never hear of Barnabas again in this. New Testament is off the radar. One of the most amazing things about an encourager, and you can imagine, by the way, can you imagine Barnabas while he's arguing with back and forth with Paul about taking John Mark? Can you imagine what's going through his mind? Oh, don't you remember when the disciples shut you out because they didn't trust you? And now you're not willing to give this young man a second chance? Come on, Paul. But he doesn't do that. And they go separate ways. One of the things about an encourager is this, is that they fight for the person in the aftermath of a great personal failure. They fight for the person in the aftermath of personal failure. Have you ever had a Christ following friend who absolutely blew it? Who absolutely messed up? Have you ever had one like that? What do we do with people like that? How do we handle that? How do you handle it when somebody that you've trusted fails in many different kinds of ways? What do you do? How do you respond? The person that's the encourager says, I'm not abandoning you. No, not at all. I'm going to get down in this with you, and I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to be there. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. And we're going to get through this. The fascinating thing is that through Barnabas' influence in John Mark's life, he was restored, and years later, when Paul is in the last days of his life writing a book to his young son in the ministry, Timothy, he writes to him and says, by the way, only Luke is with me. Bring the books, and oh, please bring John Mark because he's profitable to me. It just so happens that that same John Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark which many scholars believe was the first gospel ever written, and it was a gospel that went to the Roman world. It because Barnabas was there to restore Mark in the aftermath of personal failure. That's an encourager. So as you look back across this, and I could have given examples, many examples. I just wanted to walk through it with you because I want to, Give you an encouragement exercise to close the message. But as you look back at a balcony person, what is a balcony person? They're attentive and responsive to real physical personal needs. They act, they move, they speak, they're specific, they're sincere. They're the kind of people that come along and are an advocate for you when nobody else, everybody else wants to shut you out. They extend grace to you and embrace you and they're a servant-hearted person who's always looking at you in the terms of the potential trying to come alongside and saying how can I be used of God to breathe life into this person so they can grow and develop and become everything God created them to be. They're the kind of person who is so resilient and redemptive that when you fail, they're there with and for you until you're restored. That's an encourager. Truett Cathy, who's the founder and president of Chick fil A, said that in all of his travels around the world, he's come to understand that there's an international sign for people who need encouragement. International sign for people who need encouragement. He said, anyone who's breathing. And isn't it interesting? The only place we ever get encouragement right and too often is at funerals. That's when we give the roses of encouragement. Not on a daily basis while they're living. In the New Testament challenge, a hundred different times the word is used to come alongside, to do life with, to breathe life into, in all the ways we described this morning. Now, as I wrap up, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. Look at what it says there. An amazing verse in by the way, when you get into Hebrews, it's written, it's actually a sermon written by a pastor to a group of people who are re- about ready to abandon their faith because it was so hard. Listen to what he says to them. Begin at verse 13. But encourage one another, breathe life into one another. How often? Daily. As long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How often do you need encouragement? How often do I need balcony people in my life and to become a balcony person for other people every single day of my life? Because life, the daily grind of it, sucks the life out of me. I need somebody there to breathe life into me. Why? So I won't give in to the enemy's lies that would cause me to say my life doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't count. This is no big deal. And then look at Hebrews chapter 10 just to kind of echo this Hebrews chapter 10, and look at what it says there, beginning at verse 25, 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day coming, all the more as, you, as life and challenges become even more menacing and difficult and challenging. Why is it so important that you gather together like this and get together with other Christ followers and in community groups? Why? Because you're out there in the thick of it with a culture and with an enemy of your soul and working against you. And you go into these meetings and you're, you, you sometimes don't even want to. You're so exhausted. You're so tired. You're just saying, I don't want to go. I can't make it. And yet when you go, there's something that happens. Something is breathed into you. So here's the encouragement exercise. Okay? I want you to think of kind of like three concentric circles that make up your life. That outer circle is just kind of your everyday normal trafficking world. You go into your favorite coffee shop. There's a person there that you see on a pretty regular basis. And they're looking for somebody to be an encouragement to them. I stepped into a coffee shop early, early this morning As I stepped into there, the person on the other side of the encounter, you could tell, I don't want to be here. I have an opportunity in that moment to breathe life into that person. Somebody waits on me at a restaurant or waits on me at a store, retail store, to be able to look back at them and say something like this, hey, I just want to tell you, your smile is so so contagious. Whatever they're paying you, they need to double it. People like that are going, well, where's this coming from? And sometimes to even be patient with people who, based upon the response to you, is not so encouraging. All those people in your big world out there, just think about it. This next week, as you're thinking, all right, I'm walking into this place. I'm walking into this store. I'm going to have an encounter with somebody on the T. Just think this last next week. I get, now watch this, you are not the source of encouragement, God is, but you can be the channel. God encouraged somebody today through me so that they can see you in me. Your larger life. And then there's the place of influence, kind of the next circle. place where you work. Is it toxic? Is it challenging? What kind of culture is there? Is one of, you know... Fear or is it one of trust? Is it one of suspicion? Is it one of community or is it one of isolation and competitiveness? You're in that situation instead of walking up to somebody and just kind of in this business-like everyday, what are you doing? Or trying to get them to move along in some particular project, just go up to them in a quiet moment and say, hey, so how's it going? How are you doing? Just ask that question. How are you doing? Just ask them. And then the innermost circle is our family and our friends. And if I could speak to all the wives here for a minute, you know what your husband lives with almost every single day of his life? Do I have what it takes? Am I going to be enough for my family, for my wife? Do I have what it takes? And for you to be able to come alongside of them As a wife, and to be able to say to them at the right time, not in a forced, superficial way, but to say, hey, you know what? I so believe in you. God believes in you, and I believe God's going to do amazing things through you. Hey, husbands, for your wives, am I going to be noticed? am I am I going to be cherished? And uh, guys, just a little bit of a heads up here. Uh, our wives play a cruel game with us. Have you ever had a wife go out and get a haircut? And she comes back. Does she say anything to you like, "I've got a haircut. What do you think? Never. It's always. she gets a haircut. Doesn't tell you and is waiting for you to say something, right? And guys, if she brings it up, you are in trouble. Wanting a sense of just, hey, acknowledgement, I cherish you, you matter to me. Same thing with our kids. Can you imagine the night, every night, A parent praying over their kid at night and saying, God, help this child to be a world changer for you. Can you imagine that? What that would instill in a child. So that's your challenge, to discern as God moves in your life this next week to be a balcony person. And you can only do that, listen, you can only do it not to build up somebody else's self-esteem, but to help them to understand God's purpose and plan for the life and live that out. And it comes from Christ. You are the channel discerning in the right moment, in the right way, how to be there for and with another person. I can go back across my life and I can go back and I can tell you the moments and the people. I can see them with my mind's eye. Fifth grade teacher. Mr. Hicks, who took the time patiently over the course of my fifth grade year after class to just speak into my life, to show up my ball games, to be there for and with me. I can remember a young 27-year-old tentative itinerant, excuse me, itinerant speaker by the name of Richard Hogue who put his arm on my shoulders a 17-year-old kid and said, David, God can use you greatly if you'll let him. And he prayed over me. And most recently, in a moment when our lives were just literally turned upside down and we were facing a life-threatening situation, I drove into my driveway a little past midnight my wife was not with me because she was the one facing the life-threatening situation. I drove in to just get some things to go back to be with her. There in that driveway was my cardiologist friend, a member of our church who just came. Didn't say a whole lot, but he put his arm around me and pulled me in and prayed over me. I will never, ever forget that. And that got us through the next several years. It breathes life into you. It's our calling as Christ's followers to be what? Balcony people to be Barnabases. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for these moments this morning. We've been able to, to trace the qualities, the characteristics of a man who was so remarkable. He was a patron saint. And as we look back at his life, here's what we see. We see a man who took and gave everything he had so that people in need would have what it takes to get through the day. Who was responsible for literally discipling Paul so the gospel could be shared. Coming alongside a broken young man by the name of Mark so that the gospel could be penned and shared throughout the entire world. While we may not talk about him as being famous, perhaps no one person was more influential in all the New Testament than Barnabas because he touched Paul's life and he touched John Mark's life and he helped the church to move forward. So we thank you for him. We pray we would be the same kind of person beginning in our real world lives this next week, the upside-down kingdom. Well, thank you for all that you've taught us this morning. Help us now to go out, live it, do it, discerning in appropriate ways so that you might be seen through us to others, even arousing curiosity among those who see us living this way. What is it about you so that we might make Christ known? Thank you for this very powerful message from a man we can certainly learn to live in the same way he lived, by the power of your spirit as you work powerfully in us. In Jesus' name, amen.